0: Welcome to the Writer's Room on 103.2 Dublin City FM. I'm Jonathan Creasy. This week I'm talking to writer and mapmaker Garrett Carr. Carr's book, The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border, published by Faber & Faber, chronicles a journey along the entire length of the Irish border, weaving history, memoir, maps, and photographs into a timely story, all the more urgent now given Brexit and the current political climate. Originally from Donegal, Carr is senior lecturer in the Seamus Heaney Centre in Queen's University Belfast. He begins by reading a border manifesto created in collaboration with the American artist Suzanne Lacey. They organised what they called the Border People's Parliament in the Grand Hall of Stormont, Northern Ireland's parliament, and got the input from people living in Ireland's borderlands. There are nine points in the manifesto. You'll hear some now, and the rest at the close of the programme. Welcome to the Writers' Room, Garrett Carr.
1: Thank you for having me. With the manifesto, apart from capturing what people said, I also I also sort of wanted to capture their tone and the way they said it. So, but there's some lovely turns of phrase I thought, and also a kind of a, a laconic humour that uh, I wanted to try and get in the manifesto also. And one man commented that the world needed a true account of the border and its people. A true account of the border and its people, I thought that was a beautiful phrase. So that's that's the subtitle of the whole document. So, uh, the Yellow Manifesto, a true account of the border and its people. 1. People who live on the border need a say on the nature of that border. Everyone needs to understand the emotional meaning of the border, as well as its practical impacts. Don't think just of the borderline, think of the lives on the border. 2. This is one of the most beautiful places on earth. We need to preserve this for everyone, the night sky, lakes, bogs and mountains. We value the freedom we have to wander in our environment. 3. We value our ability to live and work in either jurisdiction. Many of us cross the border daily. Homesteads, farms and businesses span both sides. We value the border as a place of mingling, comings and goings, cultural clash and negotiation. We value the borderlands uniqueness. We value family and friends. We have relatives across religious and social borders and love our differences. We value peace and quiet. Four. we know how to resist we know how to adapt how to open closed roads how to quickly evaluate strangers and work out currency exchange rates how to get along with neighbors even when our views are opposed we don't fit the stereotypes
0: that's excellent thank you what drew you to the border as a subject for your work
1: well there's a couple of parts of that i i suppose it began because i grew up quite close to it so it was something that was uh in my memory and uh is part of my life. We, uh, I grew up probably about, it was about half an hour away of it. So we didn't cross it every day. But it was something that sort of figured. And we would go across oh, perhaps once a month or so. Because in those days. I grew up in Donegal. And in those days Northern Ireland was cheaper for quite a lot of uh, goods and groceries and things. So that's what would get us across the border. But also in those days it was a hard border. Although we didn't have that term. So there was customs on the republic of ireland side of the border and a military presence on the northern ireland side so crossing the border was a bit of an ordeal it had a there was a certain confrontation about it i we never experienced any real trouble there ourselves but uh i suppose it was more of a sort of an emotional confrontation especially for people of my father's generation you know i was quite young i probably saw it as more of an adventure but to him uh you could tell would get quite moody about the border there was a there was a kind of a there was a kind of a challenge in it, and I suppose no matter what your politics are if you if you're half an hour from your house and there's somebody with a gun asking you where you're going, that's going to be a a kind of a confrontation a dislocating sort of experience and so that that was that was kind of what I remembered about the border is this sort of challenging place or rather not a place at all more like a kind of an experience after the good friday agreement after both north and south of ireland joined the uh the common market of course all that infrastructure was removed and the border became an open place and it seemed like a good time to go back and see it again and treat it as a place rather than a difficulty rather than a confrontation And actually dare to see it as a landscape and as even as a kind of look at it in a sort of a positive way as this this new new part of ireland to be discovered
0: and why did you decide to walk or in some places canoe the length of the border why did you commit to that kind of restriction for yourself
1: yes well i suppose it's oft commented that a lot of creativity emerges from restrictions that was quite a strict restriction which was to always stay close to the line and once I started doing that, I did find the idea hard to shake. It it meant I had a much more sort of rural experience. People have written about the border before, but they tend to flit from town to town kind of thing. Where in actual fact, if you stick to the line, you really don't go through any towns. There are one or two exceptions, small, small villages, but uh, mostly you're an open landscape. I suppose I felt like I wanted to have the right to represent the border. Uh, so I was writing a book. I was also making maps and taking photographs and it's, it's a big place, or it's a long place. So I felt like if I was going to presume to, uh, to be a, a guide to this place, I had to, I had to know it and I had to see it with my own two eyes. This felt like an important principle. In some ways, um, the work with Tim Robinson, who, who who's written and mapped places in the west of Ireland, was an example to me here. And he's spoken of that, this, this, the importance of seeing the place of your own eyes i think he described it as his golden rule for his books but again it's about having that right to to have the ground up view rather than the the top down view which is the, the more typically sort of political view and certainly the uh, colonist view so i wanted to be on the ground there like the front line sort of correspondent and actually know it and actually know what it smells like, know what it tastes like, know what it feels like. And it was yeah, It was about having the right to, to claim to represent it. The border, I suppose, is a place that has, has fostered suspicions over the years. You sort of might expect that. And I remember I would tell people I was doing this project, walking the border, and people would react quite strongly like this was quite a dangerous thing to do.
0: Now, I've done a good bit of writing on the US-Mexico border. I've made trips there. I've made trips up to the Irish border as well. And, of course, these are very different locations. The U.S.-Mexico border has a great deal more infrastructure. It's a hard border, um, as you said, whereas the Irish border is in many ways invisible. Uh, But what connects these two places, in my mind, and as you've written, is the idea of this kind of third place. Places that belong neither here nor there, but somewhere in between.
1: Yeah, this was something that occurred to me when I was already some way into the journey. I suppose what it was you're talking to people and the common ground they're expressing is to other people just over the line as opposed to references to the parliament in Dublin or the parliament in Belfast. So yeah you got this sense of a place that's sort of uh, looking into itself so I thought that was quite interesting. There is, I suppose, certain traits that would naturally develop on a, on a border. There is that little bit of suspicion that I've referred to. There's also, it's quite um, a challenge or opportunity perhaps to live on the frontier. You, so you have these two systems and if you're canny about it, you can sort of play them a bit. So you could live on one side and work on the other or send your kids to school on the other or, or access medical services on the other. So there's this kind of canniness that kind of emerge. It's also a place that seems to me has learned to be discreet. It's a place where people have learned to avoid sore topics. And this has been going on a long time. Therefore, it's become almost sort of embedded. That's a little bit of a Northern Irish uh, characteristic in general, to be honest. But um, I think along the border, it has a particular pertinence.
0: Now, you're someone deeply knowledgeable about the history of the Irish border what did you make of the Brexit referendum before it happened? Um, and was the result of the referendum a surprise to you? Was it a surprise to people in the Irish borderlands? And do you think it will fundamentally change things on the border in Ireland? Well, there's
1: a danger that it could fundamentally change them.
0: Uh, yeah, I was surprised, actually. I suppose I'd been
1: hanging around the border too much, where no, very few people were voting for Brexit. Very few people were voting to leave the EU. And I suppose it's a bit of an echo chamber. So you kind of end up thinking, oh, that's not going to happen because you haven't met anybody who's voting that way. At least nobody admitted it. So um, so I got, yeah, I was surprised. And immediately I had to go back because I was just finishing the book at the time. So immediately I had to go back and speak to people about the possibilities, what, what might emerge. And it was very hard to get a handle on because nobody knew what was going to happen. However, now, two years later, it's still <laughs> it's still very unclear. The danger is that some sort of infrastructure is returned to uh to the borders is installed in the borderline again. Uh and nobody wants to do it, as has always been pointed out. Uh, the EU, Westminster, Dublin, everybody's saying well we're we don't want to do it this is a fact that's been jumped upon by some brexiteers who are pointing out well it's not going to happen because nobody wants to do it however it won't really be their decision it will end up being a legal issue uh to do with the protection of markets and fundamentally it will probably have to happen because not to do it will become illegal in some sort of context or another what could it look like i suppose it's return of the of the customs such or some sort of customs facilities and i would be worried about that even if it was very light touch to be honest even if it was only one car and 10 has stopped that still means the border has returned a little bit has stopped being a place again and again is a kind of an experience a sort of confrontation You you arrive at it and you don't know how long it will take you to cross it and again the kind of questions we were subconsciously ra- wrestling with when i was a child those issues will once again uh, be faceness where do you belong where do you feel you've the right to belong where do you feel you've the right to wander these are the things that were uh caught up in the infrastructure of the hard border previously and uh could could return again and that would be a real shame because the border as it is now is a wonderfully delicate arrangement to have arrived at uh where it's there, if you want it to be there, if your identity sort of depends on it. Primarily, I suppose, if you're a Northern Irish Unionist. But on the other hand, if you don't want it to be there, if you just want to, if you if you feel more akin to a sort of an all Ireland identity, then it's sufficiently invisible that you can also uh, uh, feel comfortable about it too. And uh, that didn't happen by accident. It was hard. One was hard built. And uh, I'm disturbed about anything that that might threaten that.
0: Yeah, I spoke to a taxi driver in Belfast who told me he was from a unionist background, but post-Brexit was feeling certainly more amenable to the idea of a united Ireland. Although he wouldn't fully support it, certainly something more acceptable to him in the wake of this referendum. And this seemed to be something, as he was implying, that was common uh, in his community and among the people that he knows. It's interesting to see how all of this has come up to the present moment, really come to the surface, when we thought, I think, perhaps, that it was relegated to problems of the past.
1: Yes. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting. And I'm sure one thing Brexit is doing is helping to break down those traditional the traditional binary in Northern Ireland, which I suppose is no bad thing. There's a couple of things there. Number one, it's the possibility of a hard border would be damaging to Northern Ireland. But also, I suspect for a lot of people, including your taxi driver, there's this realisation that you're like an afterthought to somebody else's national story which um, is excluding inevitably makes one feel excluded and makes you think well actually maybe uh, I could throw my lot in with some other project as well certainly Brexit has done more for the possibility of United Ireland than the IRA campaign ever came close to achieving so yes interesting times
0: the first time you and I met was in Belfast in the context of a documentary film project. And that evening, the evening I left to to head back to Dublin, there was a bombing uh, in, in Derry. So it seems like these things can get hotter than we expected, faster than we expected.
1: Yes, and, and talking to people on the border about the possible side effects of the UK leaving the EU. One thing I did notice is... Uh, it's not as if I talked to thousands of people, but I noticed that the younger people were less, maybe the whole thing was a bit more abstract to them, and, uh, and they didn't seem quite as riled up about it. I suppose they were just used to the open border, and uh, yeah, uh, maybe it's just harder for them to imagine what a hard border would be like. But the older people were much more anxious, in my experience. I think maybe partly because they've seen how quickly things can go wrong and how badly things can go wrong. Um, and yes, how quickly things can sort of spiral out of control. So there, there was more wariness there. I felt, and uh, yes, you're right that uh, the bomb in d- Derry recently just seems to come out of the blue, and uh, that just goes to show that there are still people there
0: who uh, who are willing to yeah blow things up for these issues. And do you think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about? what the borderlands are, who the people of the borderlands are by the politicians in Westminster who are responsible for enacting this referendum and exiting the UK from the European Union.
1: Earlier in the process, Westminster was perfectly happy to talk about the importance of keeping an open border. Um, they named it themselves as a key issue. But now that it's become problematic, It seems to have. Uh, they seem to be de-emphasizing it and uh, de-emphasizing the importance of the backstop. If troubles on the border are abstract to young people who actually live on the border then they're extremely abstract to a London-based political system. It's hard to know what to do about that. Myself and other commentators do our best. I find uh, people will often think about the borders they're more familiar with so I would do quite a lot of international interviews and talks and things and you can and people's image of ireland's- Ireland's border often tends to be related to the the border that's closest to them, so the first thing you gotta tell them that it's not really like israel Palestine because there wasn't a physical barrier there, even during the troubles there wasn't uh some other people think more like the Berlin wall or something again it's not really like that. Other people think about the u s mexico border and it's not really like that it's not you're not talking about you're not talking about migration issues in the same way. So um, the first thing I have to do is explain what the thing actually looks like which is basically just a uh, rural population lots of farms and an invisible line running down the middle, but absolutely no uh, effect on how businesses function or people live their lives. So a completely arbitrary line that were it suddenly to become reinforced would be a real psychic shock also immensely strange for the people who live there. So I often find that's the, sort of the first thing I have to do is simply say, this is what it looks like.
0: It is fascinating that while this is, in Ireland, an invisible border in many ways, that it lives so deeply in the historical memory and the psychology of Ireland. Um, in some ways, in connecting it to or differentiating it from the US-Mexico border where, for example, in El Paso, there is a wall or a fence that runs straight through the south side of the city, walling it off from Juarez, Mexico. Well, I also think in the United States, there's not enough of an understanding, a historical understanding of everything that that physical border implies.
1: Yeah, but that's interesting talking of the image of the the border and how it's perceived, because I would say in many parts of the world, the U S Mexico border is perceived as desert country. Um, and you hear a lot about people dying at first as, as they cross it and, and other people volunteering, going out there and leaving water supplies for them. And that's kind of the image that's most striking. And, and I think, as far as I can remember, almost every photograph I've seen of border border wall in, in the United States is that kind of country. What you don't hear about or see so much is that it actually also goes across urban areas where Mexicans, Mexicans and uh, US citizens are living actually just right next to one another. And able to sort of see each other over over the over the line. That's that that image of the U.S. border there hasn't got out as much, I think, as as the idea of it being wilderness.
0: Well, that's it. And the idea of migration or illegal immigration dominates the conversation about the U.S. Mexico border. Well, at the same time, there are settled families, communities on these borderlands for generations. A reporter colleague of mine down on the border told me that people in the US-Mexico borderlands say the border crossed us. We didn't cross the border.
1: Well, that, that will probably be the experience for some Irish border people now. Well, then, if it's reinforced, so there'll be that sense of the border crossing them or at least popping back out of the ground under their feet. But of course, and the question of migration, Brexit, it was driven by concerns about migration. It was UKIP's whole driving uh, mantra was take control of our borders. Primarily the idea being, uh, the concern being too much immigration. So even though you didn't have people crossing the Irish border in that way, that's still why it's going to have to change now, it seems. So there is a kind of a common story to it. And I think in some ways I was reacting to that when I started the, the project, when I started taking, a, taking an interest in Ireland's border. There was an atmosphere, because I'm talking about 10 years now, maybe. A long time before the Brexit vote was even a possibility. But there was an atmosphere throughout Europe, maybe, maybe even further afield. Something about nationalism was re-emerging, ethno-nationalism. Some kind of concern about identity and who we are and how we fit in the jigsaw puzzle of, of the world map, that felt like it was co- sort of coming out again. And the emergence of the UK Independence Party, UKIP, was emerging from that. And you've seen it in the United States as well, with, the, uh, with that sort of tone re-emerging in right-wing politics. So it was sort of in the air and it felt like the right time to go look at a border, it felt like Borders were starting to reassert themselves in the imagination. 5. We could teach you about tolerance. We could teach about the futility of division. Border people have codes. We know how to treat each other in order to keep harmony. The border is where realities can coexist. Coexistence is essential to the contract we have with each other. Is a higher thing than economics or security. Six. No one was unaffected by our history, the sights we saw, the hurt and fear. Some people lost far too much. For many, the border gives safety and protection and preserved identity. We all need to learn history, our own and others. Preserve this knowledge so that the troubles of the past remain in the past. 7. Keep the border invisible and confined to maps. We want no checkpoints. Heightened security doesn't make us feel safe or more secure. It makes us feel the opposite. Angry, anxious, tense, defensive and fearful. The border is now one of cooperation and collaboration. 8. The difference between yes and no can be made into maybe. The Good Friday Agreement brought peace and stability. We fear the reversal of this good work. We can teach the world about history, respect and forgiveness, but we need more time to come to terms with our past. You don't rush border people. Nine. Some of us want to grow together without a border. Some of us want the border intact, alone and visible. Our neighbors are our friends. We all choose peace. When I was traveling the border, I got really interested in defensive architecture and the things that people have built along the line it's not a very high population on the border so sometimes you go quite a while without meeting anybody and in some ways I felt I was seeing border people through the things they built rather than people themselves Um, one I went to visit Maori Fort which is quite near the beginning of the border the the way I began anyway which is from the east and uh, it was built in the early 1600s by Lord Mountjoy's campaign was sent there to subdue the uh, the rebels in the north of Ireland, uh, and I quite like this because it it says one thing about the ruins of defensive structures along the border, which is that that they are sort of still alive, because Ireland's border is an ongoing story, and the history there is still not quite they haven't they haven't put the full stop on it yet. So, uh, and I thought this evening, after visiting Mowry Fort, I an encounter which reminded me of that. So, I go to visit Mowry Fort, and uh, then I'm returning from it. I follow the lane back to my campsite. There are a few houses. Television light flickering against the insides of curtains. Gorse flower and the pale surface of the lane are picking up moonlight and emitting a low gleam. I meet two children walking the opposite way, a boy and a girl. It's strange for all of us, an encounter on a silent road after dark, although strangest for them. They are at home. One of these houses is theirs, but I am a mystery. I frightened them. They stopped dead. Hello, I say, I was just visiting the castle. They don't move. I'm not sure if I should keep approaching them, but stopping might pressurize them as well. I slow down, but don't quite stop. It's good up there, isn't it, I say. Yeah, says the boy quietly, watchful, but remembering that one should be polite. The girl is holding her hands clasped together in front of her stomach. Do you know who built the castle, I ask them. It was a bad man, says the boy. They both remain straight-faced, but this hint of engagement allows me to stop walking. Do you mean Lord Mountjoy? They both nod vigorously a couple of times, but suddenly stop, realising that they don't know what they're agreeing to carefully the girl asks was he a wizard this gives me pause after all mountjoy understood the power of stones but i don't want to mislead children he wasn't i say then no says the girl a different man a wizard i ask he could cast evil spells she says i must have seemed concerned because the boy quickly chips in but don't worry he doesn't live there any more. it's just a ruin says the girl
0: You've been listening to my conversation with writer and mapmaker Garrett Carr. You'll find his book, The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border, in bookstores and online, published by Faber and Faber. If you want to see the full text of the Border Manifesto that Carr read, you can find it at our website, writersroomradio.com. The music you've been listening to for the last few minutes is by Irish composer Benjamin Dwyer. The Writer's Room is produced and presented by me, Jonathan Creasy, for Pegasus and New Dublin Press and 103.2 Dublin City FM. Thanks for listening and see you next week.